Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Sunday, February 2nd, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 32. This episode is brought to you by Polyculture, our farm resources blog. We create informative content about a wide variety of topics, including organic agriculture, composting, seed saving, herbalism, permaculture strategies, and more. We love sharing the tools for sustaining backyard food production in areas you might not expect, such as on small plots and in urban areas. If you enjoy this content, please support us by going to www.patreon.com polyculture. This episode is going to discuss our current dominant food system in the U.S., the industrial food system. Some background on why I'm making this episode. When I was in high school, I read the acclaimed book Fast Food Nation, and I was horrified about what I learned. I began my boycott of fast food way back then. Then fast forward to being an adult. I started growing my own food in Brooklyn, New York in 2013 with my neighbors. It began because I had a curiosity surrounding community gardens as sites for radical transformation, spaces where communities could come together and grow fresh food despite living in food insecure areas like the inner cities. I soon learned I was part of a long lineage of New Yorkers, especially women who participated in these gardens. And I spoke about this in episode 7, The Radical History of Community Gardens. At around the same time that I began working with community gardens, one evening I was biking home and I stopped at the local grocery store on Myrtle Avenue. While I waited in the checkout line, I noticed the cashier's terminal was littered in these small paper notices. And on them were recall notices. To my surprise, they weren't just for raw meat. There were recall notices from everything from packaged cookies to romaine lettuce. So I asked myself, how could this be? And why were there so many? This set off my particular fascination with food recalls. I was curious how our systems of food production could allow for so many items to make it all the way to the consumer before it was determined that they were unsafe. And then in 2018, I spent a year chronicling the recalls as they were reported each month. No foods were exempt. Fresh greens, cut fruits, chicken eggs, prepared foods, nuts, beef products, even packaged cake mix were on the list of food recalls that year. So this episode is going to talk about why recalls seem to be a food-wide phenomenon, and not something that we can simply pass off as being an effect of animal agriculture. In actuality, the vast majority of recalls are found in foods other than meats, and although industrial animal agriculture is a big part of the story, it's far more complex than that. Industrial agriculture is a term that not everyone may be familiar with, so let's first define it. Industrial agriculture is characterized by agriculture which is dominated by industrial-era forms of production. These characteristics include large-scale monoculture, use of chemical fertilizers and pesticides, confined animal feeding operations, and use of heavy machinery in production, packaging, and distribution. Industrial agriculture also has a focus on just a few government-subsidized crops, mainly corn, wheat, and soy. These crops are then converted into animal feed, processed foods, and biofuels. Industrial agriculture was sold as another facet to the advancement of modern society. The old ways of regional, seasonal agriculture were out, and the post-World War II 1950s optimism began to make way for an American society where every kind of food would be available all the time in a large supermarket. People were also sold the idea that industrial agriculture would feed the world's growing population. 
lifting the poorest people out of starvation and booming the agricultural economy. Unfortunately, left out of this propaganda was the externalized costs with such a system. These costs were hidden, and some of their effects wouldn't be seen for many years. Industrial agriculture has taken a toll on the land and waterways, on indigenous people's land rights, on small farmers and rural communities, on farmer health, both physical and mental, on taxpayers, and on consumers. Consumers suffer for a number of reasons, some of these being because the quality of food we are receiving is poor, the food is grown in poor soil and has poor nutrient density, the monocrops used to make shelf-stable processed foods with serious health impacts like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and cancer, leading to a rise in health costs and healthcare-related hardship like medical debt and bankruptcy. And lastly, we have to contend with antibiotic resistance, which affects the entire public. The widespread use of antibiotics in industrial animal agriculture is accelerating the resistance of bacteria, leading to serious outbreaks and pandemics. The industrial food system has also created a severe inequality as to who will suffer the consequences of their actions, mainly poor communities of color. Black, Latino, and Native American communities are the targets of industrial dumping in their local land and waterways, and the most likely to have bad air quality from distribution trucks, industrial facilities, and trash incinerators, all an effect of the waste stream created by industrial agriculture, an inherently linear system of production. Now we're at a point where agriculturalists are realizing what we've done to the soil in the past hundred years or so, that it's starting to impact the soil fertility, the crop yields, and the planet. We know monoculture tills up the microorganisms that hold carbon in the soil and convert nutrients into plant-soluble nutrients. This means that industrial agriculture has exhausted the soil's natural fertility cycles. The tillage and row cropping has also left us with poor drought resistance and compacted soils which require more irrigation. The loss of the mycelial web networks results in increased erosion and topsoil loss. And lastly, there are impacts to biodiversity around these industrial farms. These unnatural forms of planting leave other local ground animals, birds, insects, and amphibians with little to pollinate and little to eat. It is a severely disruptive system to the ecology, yet it's how most of the food you see in the grocery store is produced. So we have this system that's not good for us and not good for the ecology, and though the popular discourse is that industrial agriculture is the safest form of agriculture and that U.S. food supply is among the safest in the world, there were over 3,000 food products recalled in the U.S. in 2016. So where does this leave us? We need to look at not just how the food is produced, but also how it's processed, packaged, transported, and then moved to the marketplace. And what is a food recall? This is when a food producer or regulator intentionally takes a product out of production because there is reason to believe it may cause illness. Sometimes it's not the food producer, but a government agency that requests a food recall. Different government agencies are responsible for different sects of the food supply, and these include the CDC, the FDA, and the USDA. There are a few main recall categories, including the discovery of organisms such as foodborne pathogens like E. coli, salmonella, listeria, or certain parasites, the discovery of foreign objects from the food system like plastic, broken glass, or metal, undeclared sulfites, uneviscerated fish, or the discovery of a major allergen which does not appear on the product's packaging. Food recalled items may cause illness as well as contaminate the area in which they were stored in the grocery store or kitchen. 
If you discover that a food you've purchased has been recalled, you may either return the product to purchase a refund or dispose of it. Then you must take the steps to clean the surfaces it may have touched in the refrigerator or counter, as well as other surfaces like plates, pots and pans, utensils, and other things that the product may have made contact with. You may also have heard of a foodborne outbreak. This is when two or more people get the same illness from the same contaminated substance. When there's evidence of an outbreak, public health officials work to collect information to find out where it originates, to recall that item and mitigate more sickness. Usually the public is warned about the contaminated food through media and signage at the market. Some outbreaks, if widespread enough, are investigated by the Center for Disease Control or CDC. The CDC is the main coordinator between multiple public health officials and organizations in identifying an outbreak, finding out how widespread it is, and how to track down the source. The CDC estimated in 2011 that each year 48 million people, or one in six Americans, get sick, 128,000 are hospitalized, and 3,000 die of foodborne disease from around 31 major pathogens. The Food and Drug Administration has a number of responsibilities when it comes to food recalls and controls about 80% of the food supply oversight. The other 20%, primarily meat, poultry, and some egg products, is regulated by a branch of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA, called the Food Safety and Inspection Service, or the FSIS. The first way that a FDA regulator may learn of a possible contamination is through inspection of a manufacturing or import facility. The FDA inspects more than 88,000 domestic registered food facilities that manufacture, process, pack, and hold food. It also ensures the safety of imported foods at over 212,000 registered foreign food facilities, which produce more than 12 million food commodity import occurrences in the U.S., and it oversees thousands of possible recalls every year. Up until 2011, when the Food Safety Modernization Act was signed, food recalls were wholly dependent on manufacturers and distributors to act on their recall responsibilities. Recalls were considered voluntary alternatives to being sued by the FDA. Now, under the Food Safety Modernization Act, the FDA has the ability to mandate a recall when the FDA determines there is a reasonable probability of contamination. This may happen when a food product or manufacturer fails testing carried out by the FDA or FSIS sampling programs. The first time the FDA used this regulatory power was when salmonella was discovered at the Sunland Incorporated Peanut Processing Facility in New Mexico. The FDA makes evaluations to the severity of the recall, alerts the media when deemed necessary, and determines when it's safe to end the recall. The company may request for recall termination, or the FDA may make their own determination. There are a few different ways cooperation from the food industry producers is still necessary to prevent outbreaks, because they may be the first to learn about them. A food manufacturer or distributor may discover the issue and contact the FDA or FSIS directly, and most times this is the case. The process works like this. The FDA asks the food producer to provide information about the reason for the recall, how the problem occurred, when they discovered the problem, and the extent of the problem. They also ask questions about where they believe the product was distributed to and whether any customers have complained. Then the FDA and supplier work together to develop a recall strategy in order to determine the next steps it must take, including making sure that those products are indeed recalled, assisting in identifying the cause, and checking on whether or not the issue is limited to one company or if it is more widespread. It's not the FDA, but the producer who's responsible for the progress of the recall by performing what is called an effectiveness check. 
The FDA conducts audit checks to assess the effectiveness of a producer's recall efforts and can make reviews to the recall strategy, prompting the offending company to make certain changes. Most manufacturers are motivated to avoid recalls or work to clean them up as quickly as possible. It does interrupt business and sometimes for months or years at a time. It also loses quite a bit of consumer confidence. As you might imagine, some food producers may participate in nefarious and underhanded avoidance or delay in removing contaminated products from the market. This presents a problem regardless of regulatory oversight. So there's also the case where individual state health departments will contact the CDC about a possible foodborne illness outbreak, in which case the CDC works with the FDA or FSIS to begin an investigation. Recalls are classified according to their potential seriousness. This classification is given to a recall by the government agency responsible for overseeing the recall. Both the FDA and FSIS classify recalls according to the system. Class 1 is a health hazard situation in which there is a reasonable probability that eating the food will cause health problems or death. These are things like botulism or undeclared allergens. Class 2 recalls are the potential health hazard situation in which there's a remote probability of adverse health consequences from eating the food. And then Class 3, a situation in which eating the food will not cause adverse health consequences. So how many recalls are there every year? Let's look at the numbers. In 2013, there were 639 total recalls, 564 from processed foods, produce or another source, and 75 from meat and poultry. In 2014, there were 647 total recalls, 553 from processed foods, produce, or another source, and 94 from meat and poultry. In 2015, there were 737 total recalls, 587 from processed foods, produce, or another source, and 150 from meat and poultry. In 2016, there were 905 total recalls, 783 from processed foods, produce, and another source, and 122 from meat and poultry. In 2017, there were 817 total recalls, with 686 from processed foods, produce, or another source, and 131 from meat and poultry. And in 2018, there were 703 total recalls, 578 from processed foods, produce, or another source, and 125 from meat and poultry. As you can see, most recalled foods in these years were through contaminated vegetable, fruit, or nut products. And this is consistent with a CDC study in 2015, which concluded that the majority of foodborne illness between 1998 and 2008 were due to fresh produce, 46%, followed by meat and poultry at 22%. Recalls of meat and poultry are up 66% since 2013. And even more troubling, the most dangerous class 1 recalls of meat and poultry increased 83% between 2013 and 2018. Between 1985 and 2017, most food recalls were associated with E. coli bacteria, followed by salmonella and listeria. Even though salmonella caused less recalls overall, it caused the highest number of reported illnesses, over 20,000. Other famous cases included hepatitis A and botulism. Listeria deaths were more numerous than deaths from any other pathogen in the same time period. So whether we just get sick or worse, if people's lives are taken, food recalls are rather serious. And it all comes down to the system. 
we know that with even more regulation and oversight, food recalls continue to rise. And this is because of the industrial globalized systems of production and distribution more than any other reason. So what causes these pathogens to get into food in the first place? How can we avoid exposing ourselves to possible contaminations as much as possible? There are several ways in which pathogens may get into the food supply chain, so we'll start from the top. First, we need to consider production. This is a huge one and probably the one you might think of as being the most obvious when it comes to food contamination. The conditions of industrial agriculture are horrific in many ways. Although it has become more frowned upon in recent years, the quality of life of the animals being raised in industrial agriculture is very harmful to them. Animals are kept caged or in feedlots, in close quarters, breeding bacteria, not being able to touch real pasture, which allows for their excrement to build up on the floors that they sit or stand in. They have decreased mobility and are being fed monocrop foods which do not reflect their natural diet, leading to weakness and disease. They're given vaccinations and sometimes antibiotics to stop the spread of disease in such unnatural conditions. People can then be exposed to antibiotic-resistant bacteria by handling or eating contaminated animal products, coming into contact with contaminated water, or touching farm animals, making conditions especially difficult for farm workers. Antibiotic-resistant bacteria can enter water sources and contaminate irrigation systems for fruits and vegetables. Some examples of direct contamination in animal agriculture could be a hen whose internal organs are infected with a pathogen, who then lays an egg contaminated with that pathogen inside the yolk. Bacteria on the inside or outside of a cow's udder can go directly into the milk. Fish may absorb toxins in the water they are farmed or caught in, like PCBs, chlorinated pesticides, and other harmful contaminants. With fruits and vegetables, the main cause of production contamination is irrigation water which may become contaminated with pathogens or industrial chemical runoff. That irrigation water may have picked up E. coli from uncomposted cow manure used as fertilizer or manure-contaminated runoff from feedlot operations nearby. Animal feedlot waste is normally dumped into open-air waste lagoons, which spread airborne pathogens and release different types of harmful gases like ammonia and hydrogen sulfide, as well as fecal particulate matter into the air. Climate change-related weather events make these lagoons even more dangerous, allowing for uncomposted material to end up in the water, and eventually the water supply at large. Feedlot operations are some of the worst parts of the industrial agriculture system. We need to move away from them immediately. Three years in a row in the United States, people have gotten sick from E. coli contamination on romaine lettuce. The fall 2018 outbreak sickened 62 people in 16 states. The winter 2019 outbreak made 167 people sick in 27 states, and since 2017 there have been close to 500 people made ill, with six deaths reported from vegetables contaminated with E. coli. Remember that these only include those who are documented, and that it's likely the numbers are skewed on the low side. These outbreaks seem to be tied to contaminated irrigation water. Despite this, the FDA has been, quote, slow to investigate or publicize risks and did not disclose one outbreak to the public until the Globe contacted agency officials from a report in the Boston Globe in January 2020. The Globe goes on to report that the FDA has not punished any farm or distributor in connection to the lettuce outbreaks, even declining to release the name of the company involved. The FDA is severely understaffed when it comes to leafy green regulators in comparison to beef, and relies heavily on internal monitoring from the lettuce industry. 
Ultimately, the Globe report concludes that there is, quote, no oversight and that the FDA has a culture of caution, a fear that putting out a false alarm could damage public trust in the FDA and needlessly alarm consumers. If you want to read the full report, which I highly recommend, you can search for The Danger in Our Salad Bowls by Christine Hawney for the Boston Globe. We thank you for your reporting and your humanizing contributions to the subject, Christine. The conditions of industrial agriculture are horrific for the workers, too. Most of the E. coli outbreaks that are not from manure are connected to farm workers' sanitary conditions. A study of large red meat and poultry plants between 2015 and 2017 found an average of more than 150 violations per week and 15,000 violations over the entire period of studying these 13 farms in question. Violations include unsanitary factory conditions and meat contaminated with blood, bacteria, and feces. Current sanitation regulations require agricultural growers to provide drinking water, toilets, and hand-washing facilities to field laborers. However, enforcement of such policies is not strict. Farm workers remain particularly vulnerable to contaminated water supplies through private wells. These are not covered under the Safe Drinking Water Act of 1974 and are therefore not subject to inspection. They also tend to accumulate pesticides, fertilizers, and human or animal waste. The impact of this cannot be understated. A 1986 study found that farm workers have a rate of diarrhea 20 times higher than the urban poor, other studies finding a higher prevalence of intestinal parasites. There is also pressure for workers to work with great speed, which sometimes leads to them having to relieve themselves in a nearby area rather than to leave to use the proper bathroom facilities. The pathogens can be spread to produce in other ways, too, through clothing and footwear that's been contaminated with animal feces, tools and equipment, and illness and injury. They can also be spread through saliva and mucus, and in the case of injuries, through blood. While human pathogens can be spread in many ways, the most common way is through fecal-oral transmission. A farm worker who didn't wash their hands after using the bathroom and then handled produce, which could contaminate it, thus putting the person eating the raw fruit or vegetable at risk. Farm workers, especially those who are undocumented, are not going to be paid sick leave, leading many of them to show up to work regardless of feeling ill. You have to think that if farm workers are not getting their basic human needs met in their workplace, that they're not going to have food safety on the mind. And ultimately, it's not the responsibility of these workers, who are already being stretched very thin to provide us with produce year-round, to create safe working conditions. That is up to their employers, who are so often missing from the conversation around food safety, intersecting with farm worker safety. The conditions for female workers are even more complicated, many reporting workplace sexual harassment and even wearing diapers to work to avoid facing punishment for taking bathroom breaks. All of these various forms of abuse lead to more dangerous work environments for workers and consumers of the food being cultivated or processed. These are some of the untold costs of industrial agriculture. Next, there's processing. Processing describes taking raw ingredients and transforming them into something we'd consider to be a food item. For fruits and vegetables, this may just be the process of washing and sorting, but sometimes foods come prepared through slicing, shredding, or trimming. Other forms of processing include pasteurization, roasting, chopping, or grinding, like in the case of nut butters. Animal agriculture processing includes slaughter, cutting or grinding, as well as smoking, pre-cooking, freezing, or combining meat products with other ingredients to make a prepackaged food. 
If you think of a processing plant as being an industrialized setting, you can imagine there are several different ways contaminations may happen. Pathogens can contaminate work surfaces used for food processing, like storage bins or processing lines. Polluted water may be used to wash fruits and vegetables. This is why they're usually washed with some amount of suds or chlorine, as well as ice used to chill them. Another way is through direct contact with processors' hands, which may contaminate food on a processing line. In animal agriculture, there are other ways, such as pathogens from an animal's hide or puncturing the intestines during the slaughter process that may contaminate the meat. Sadly, because of the economic and legal status of many farm workers, they are susceptible to injury from processing plant machinery or direct work with animals. During an injury, blood, mucus, and pathogens may contaminate the food as well. Employers avoid accountability for processing workplace safety through intimidation as well as direct contact with immigration authorities. Not only is this terrifying for plant workers and their families, it does not allow for workplace issues to get corrected that may cause outbreaks of foodborne illness. In 2019, the Trump administration deregulated oversight of the pork industry with the new swine inspection system, which removes government inspectors from the processing line replacing them with plant workers who will bear the sole responsibility of determining whether a hog is diseased before slaughter, as well as removing that hog from the processing line. In addition, this deregulation allows plants to control their own line speeds, basically encouraging the pork industry to move slaughter along faster. As one might imagine, the increased line speed and the removal of oversight sounds like a recipe for more foodborne illness. In 2018, the FSIS also increased the limit on line speeds in chicken plants. These kinds of deregulation will undoubtedly increase profits, but will do little to ensure the safety of the public. Then there's distribution. This is the methods in which food gets from the farm to the processing plant and from the processing plant to a food purveyor, such as a market, restaurant, or cafeteria. Sometimes food is moved just once, but most times it's moved in several stages. The typical route is that food is moved from a farm to a processing plant and then from a processing plant to a large supplier, where it's stored for a few days in a warehouse. Then it may be moved again by truck to a local distributor and finally delivered to an individual restaurant or market. Waste contamination can happen in distribution, include if refrigerated food is left on a loading dock in warm weather, which allows bacteria to fester. Cross-contamination can occur when produce is moved onto a truck that has previously been transporting animal products without being properly disinfected, or protective packaging may become damaged during shipping, allowing pathogens to contaminate food items. Lastly, there's preparation. Preparation usually occurs in the home, in a restaurant, or another institution like a school or hospital. Sometimes food is simply reheated or assembled, other times preparation involves following recipes. Food can become contaminated in several ways during preparation. Food workers, similar to farm workers, aren't offered very many workplace protections or paid days of sick leave. This means that they're more likely to show up for work when ill, spreading pathogens by coming into direct contact with food. If they don't wash their hands after using the bathroom, this is another common form of the spread of bacteria in a kitchen. And cross-contamination can occur from improperly cleaned utensils or cutting boards previously used to handle raw meats and then used to cut raw vegetables. Refrigerators may also leak meat juices onto raw food items. Improper thawing techniques can cause bacteria to multiply quickly, thus contaminating food as it unfreezes.
Flies, insects, and rodents can contaminate foods during their storage at any point in the supply chain, but often in preparation institutions. Although most food recalls are called for earlier in the chain of production, foodborne illness may also be the result of improper preparation, especially if the ingredients were mishandled in multiple ways before arriving at their destination. This can make foodborne illness more likely, even if proper preparation techniques are used. Although heat is a reliable way to kill some pathogens, sometimes pathogens can produce toxins which are not destroyed by heat. If food workers are unsure if a food has been contaminated, it's always safest not to use it at all and reduce the risk of possibly hurting someone. The contaminations I've just spoken about can be broken down into four main categories, and these are covered in the recall strategies we outlined at the beginning. Biological contaminations are pathogens or allergens from a farm or food worker, the air, pests, or pets, dust, or another source. Physical contaminations are hair, glass, metal, fingernails, dirt, or plastic. Chemical contaminations are pesticides, kitchen cleaning agents, food containers which leach chemicals, and others, and cross-contaminations which could be from dirty clothing, unclean utensils, improper food storage, and improper waste disposal. As you might have guessed, those at highest risk for becoming seriously ill from food poisoning are children, especially those younger than five, pregnant people, elderly people, and people who are immunocompromised. This leads us to the most important part of the discussion, which is what do we do to change this? How do we make sure that the food we are eating is safe? There are two different threads here. There's changes that can be made at the policy level, and then there are changes that have to be made outside of government regulation that is taking matters into our own hands and choosing a different way of life altogether. The second strategy is the one way to make the industry really respond to you, just through your actions. As I talked about earlier, in 2011, Obama signed the Food Safety Modernization Act, which was the first federal legislation to address food safety since 1938. However, practical application of that act has been much more slow-moving. There's been a lack of funding to implement it, as well as a shortage of trained food inspectors. Congress also failed to update safety standards for meat and poultry, which fall under the USDA Food Safety and Inspection Service. And this has caused inconsistent oversight of major meat plants and seems like a plausible reason why, in particular, meat recalls are on the rise. We need to call for further policy solutions regarding food safety. Some of these policies may include lobbying for the rights of agricultural workers, workplace protections including safe drinking water, machinery training, bathroom regulations, sexual harassment protections, mandatory paid sick leave, and the unionization of farm workers so they can assert their own rights in the workplace. An extension of this is to lobby for an end to the criminalization of immigrants at large, but in this context, especially immigrants that come to work anywhere in the food system, from farms to processing plants to restaurants. We need to have better communication with immigrants in these communities so that we can learn how to serve them best and protect them from exploitative industrial agriculture corporations. Secondly, we need to fight for better food production and better testing for irrigation water to prevent more outbreaks of disease. Thirdly, we can fight for more serious consequences for food corporations that violate food safety and worker protection laws. We can also advocate for tighter monitoring of the food supply chain so that we can track outbreaks faster as food is moved and distributed. We can also ask for better and more updated ways of spreading information about recalls, especially class 1 and class 2 recalls, which can harm the public. 
This would include consequences for companies that continue to sell recalled products or who do not notify their customers of recently recalled products. Lastly, we need to fight for more regulation of factory farms, and I personally believe they need to be abolished altogether for several reasons. But more established legislation that protects the animals' quality of life as well as the workers could make a big difference in the meantime. Part of this could be advocating for the removal of ag-gag laws, which exist in several states to restrict the public's ability to photograph or videograph agricultural farms and other facilities. Other non-policy ways we can affect change in the food industry, which can be just as impactful, may include boycotting the industrial food system in any way that you can. Where you put your money matters. If this means making a schedule to see your local farmer's market or farm stand, try to set aside that time. Many farmer's markets are now accepting food stamps, which has been huge for helping low-income communities gain access to fresh foods. Other options include joining a food co-op or CSA, where you can gain access to regional foods that are grown seasonally. Filling your freezer when you can will make it easier on times where you can't make it to the markets which have limited schedules, which is a potential barrier for people accessing them. Another way around this is to team up with your neighbors and either pay them to grab items for you or switch off going to the local food markets if your schedule doesn't allow for it. Ask farmers questions and learn more about their practices. You'll find they're usually a lot different, and when it comes to raising animals, a lot more humane than the industrial farms. They'll also be happy to talk to you. Second, choosing where you eat out is just as important. The larger the corporation, the lower the quality of food, and the higher likelihood that it'll get caught up in a recall at some point. Many restaurants are becoming more transparent about where they get their food, and the ones that choose to support local farms are probably also going to have the best food handling practices too. This is because the people working in the kitchen really care about the food, and the people that they're serving, and that kind of care just isn't present in the majority of restaurants, so choose wisely. Third, you can join a community garden or learn about their food box offerings. If you have space to grow your own food in any way possible, do it. I have an episode on growing food in containers and many blogs on the Polyculture Patreon about how to grow food safely in urban environments. We need to create more awareness around growing in places that people wouldn't exactly expect you to grow, on terraces and windowsills and supplementing in the small ways that we can. When I raised chickens, I shared and sold chicken eggs with my neighbors and my community, knowing that circumventing the industrial food system is important to changing the conversation around food production. When people see you doing it, all of a sudden they realize that it's possible for them to do it as well. You can also sign up to join the Polycultured Seed Share, where we share free seeds with people around the world in the hope of creating more food security and increasing biodiversity. These impacts, no matter how small, reverberate back on the environment and create more openings for independence from the industrial food system. Ultimately, this problem is a complicated one. It involves race, class, and gender politics, and we need to be careful about how we reimagine the food system, that we do so in a way that helps uplift and stabilize our most vulnerable communities. We should be trying to make things easier on them, not harder. Unfortunately, many of the immediate solutions that we can propose may be contradictory in nature. They may not be able to mitigate the seriousness of the issues, and I think anyone who's passionate about the issue of food safety and agricultural production needs to really take that into account. We need to abolish the industrial food system, but we also need to know what we will replace it with to ensure that it is indeed better than how we are doing now. 
Designing systems that support biodiversity also need to support agricultural workers and their needs, allowing for collective employee ownership of the means of production, ensuring worker safety, and ultimately producing food that keeps us strong and healthy instead of weak and compromised. I'm not sure that we have all the answers, but we definitely have some answers, even if they are incomplete. I think that making sure that black, brown, and indigenous agriculturalists, scientists, and chefs Our leaders of the movement is essential to guiding us on the right path overall. The representation isn't the whole story. These communities are more likely to integrate traditional or ancestral ways of growing, preserving, and cooking food, which have stood the test of time for a reason. We need them in positions of power to actually change the food system. There is no simple consumerist answer to these complex problems of climate, pollution, and agricultural production. But the sooner that we can realize that, the better equipped we are to tackle this before we are in an even more dire situation. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed making it. I think it's really important that we start to examine our food system and learn more about how it works, as well as also figuring out ways that we can make it better, both in regards to policy, but more importantly with the way that we interact with food and our food system. I think with climate change, it's only going to be to our benefit to start to examine these things and to have more of a a community relationship with food so that we have more control over it. And this control also leads to a certain amount of safety, knowing where your food comes from and knowing that it doesn't necessarily have to go through all of these unnatural processes to feed you, I think is a really worthy goal. So I hope that you enjoyed the episode and I look forward to sharing much more with you in the future. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please like, subscribe, and comment to let me know how I'm doing. This episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We're bringing you info on backyard food production and sustainable living on small plots and in urban areas, as well as information about the food system, such as the podcast you just listened to. If you enjoy this content, please support us by going to www.patreon.com polycultured. This concludes episode 32 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night. <laughs>